Welcome to the Periscope Podcast. My name is Stephen Beer, co-chair of the Entertainment, Media, and Sports Practice at Lewis Brisbois. We're talking to Peter Shapiro today. Peter Shapiro is an independent music entrepreneur who has owned and operated renowned venues, Brooklyn Bowl, the Capitol Theater, Garcia's, and the legendary New York City nightclub, Wetlands Preserved. In 2015, Pete produced Fare Thee Well, celebrating 50 years of the Grateful Dead at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California, and Chicago's Soldier Field. He is the creator of Fans, the immersive live streaming platform, as well as the Rock and Roll Playhouse, a weekly national concert series that takes place in over 25 cities. Lock In, a four-day music and camping festival in Arrington, Virginia, and Jazz and Colors, an experiential music event held in Central Park and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. His other endeavors include U2 3D, the Jammies Awards, and the Green Apple Earth Day Festival, and Easy Rider Live. Shapira serves as publisher of Relics Magazine and sits on the board of a number of civic and charitable organizations, including the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum, New York Public Radio, and my colleague on the City Parks Foundation Summer Stage Board. In 2019, Peter was named Chairman of Headcount, one of the leading youth engagement and participation organizations in America. Pete Shapiro here. Let's do this. Awesome. Thanks, guys. The music never stops. What putting on 10,000 shows has taught me about life, liberty, and the pursuit of magic. So The Pursuit of Magic, it's one of the book's themes, Pete, but there are many instances in reading the book where you actually bring the magic during your storied career as a venue owner, a promoter, and industry leader. So let's talk first about Wetlands Preserved, your legendary nightclub that in, in Tribeca that you acquired ownership for at the age of 24 in April 1, 1996. April Fools, uh, appropriately, possibly. Um, you assume ownership. 24, you have no venue experience whatsoever. This is this legendary jam band venue with a worldwide reputation and an activist commitment to progress. So you, you never owned a nightclub. You, you did not, according to the book, you didn't receive the financials, so you didn't have an understanding of the hard costs associated with running a club, um, staff, paying uh, talent, insurance, all of these utilities, all of these things. And you had a modest bank account that two weeks into your reign gets uh, compromised because you're projections on a show don't work out. Um, Pete, what were, you, what were you thinking and what did you learn? Um, just hearing you talk about that, I remember the fear. You know, I could feel it in my stomach, almost a pit in my stomach. <laughs> um, just being scared, you know, of almost not knowing what you're doing. Uh, but there's also probably a little bit of a magic in that of just you know, it's actually one reason why people love the music of the Grateful Dead because you didn't know where it was going to go and improvisational music. And uh, 
you just got to hold on and like keep turning the boat. Like that's why I'm a big believer that the second shot in golf is the most important one because it's really how you react to what's going on. How do you react when your first big show, Marty Ballon, Jefferson Airplane, you know, just gets crushed and you lose 10% of what's in your bank account in one night, you know? You and I just doing it before, getting ready for this podcast. How do you deal when you're like, it's not working for a sec, technically. you like, you got to adjust and figure it out. So it helped me that early, you know, my first venue, Wetlands, uh, you know, it was seven nights a week. Uh, it had already been open seven years. There's a staff of 50. And I was 23, 24 years old. I was the youngest kid there. So it was, you know, now things seem a little easier <laughs> when I look back. But, um, you know, there's also the interesting thing, Stephen, is like you can start a new venue from zero. And that's got its own challenges and benefits. You get to set your own tone, your own culture, how things are done from the beginning. It's your way. The fans get a feel for that. And then there's taking over an existing thing. Like I did Wetlands or the Capitol Theater, which kind of blended an existing venue, but I built a new team. Relics Magazine, I ended up taking over an existing thing. So each scenario, whether you're building a new business in live music, a new venue, or you're taking over something that's pre-existing, you know, they have their idiosyncrasies, you know, and I've learned, I've been fortunate to get to do both. And, um, uh, and, and that's how I've ended up building some of my new own, own Brooklyn Bowls, brand new, you know, but I love also taking over wetlands, taking over the cap, coming in, meeting with the staff, being like, what you've done is awesome and magic. And now I'm going to, we're going to try and lift it up and go higher than we have before, you know, and there's something really awesome about doing that, um, and I, and I also learned, I think, coming into wetlands, which existed already, like your eyes, you know, and ears looking around. And everyone at home probably had that experience when you're at a show, seeing things that you might improve, whether it's the sound, the lights, the beer line, the ticket office, getting this ticket, you know, the marketing, security is a big one. And so I learned coming into wetlands, like before I took over, in the months before I took over, I got to go a bunch as like, not just a normal customer, but the kid who was going to take over. And that helped a lot. Whether you're launching a new business in live music or an existing one, give yourself as much as you can some running time, um, runway. Runways are helpful, man. It doesn't all happen right at once. You got to figure it out. But it takes, as you know better than anybody, it takes great relationships with artists and their representation in order to get them comfortable in a place, in order to attract them to a place. Along comes a 24-year-old kid. And even though they're like the venue, you they must have been scrutinizing you. You must have felt a little bit concerned about having to step up and into the shoes of Larry Block. Yeah, it's hard. That's why I said it was a good first experience. You know, when everyone else is 30 and you're 24 and they're the bartender and you're the new owner, you know, you learn pretty quick, hopefully, how to deal with people, you know, and how to be cool and how to hang and how to be positive in a challenging environment, how to get people want to fight, row in the same direction as you. So I think, you know, starting off with that big challenge at Wetlands, dropping a kid in to an environment, you know, these are hardened rock club people, you know, that 
I'm still adjusting every day to things going wrong during the day for shows. We just got told today, before I jumped on this call with you, we just heard from the New York City Department of Water, you know, they're going to shut water down on Wednesday night at Brooklyn. You know, close the vent, you know, we in like, what do you tell the act? How do you deal with that? How, what do you tell ticket buyers? Like, how do you adjust and, and make the most of that challenging situation? Um, every day, it never gets easy. Also, the details matter. Every As long as the details matter, it's hard. You know, it can get easier, but it never gets easy. Because once all the little things matter and putting on a live music concert, the details matter, what we talked before. And not just sound lights, the obvious, but what's going on in the bathroom, you know, how you got into the show. If you go to a show and you get off put by just the vibe, the security people, the ticketing people, the line, you know, that can throw off your vibe and your mood and your, and that can then impact the rest of your experience. So, you know, I'm a, I, I think it all matters. And we try to instill in our team and our staff, you know, and a lot of that we learned at Wetlands. Wetlands was not an ideal music venue. You know, it was opened originally as like a Grateful Dead fan, Hank, in 1989. The Larry Block, who started it, did not build it to be like a traditional music venue, like a Bowery Ballroom in New York or a Troubadour in L.A. or Lincoln Hall in Chicago. These are great classics. Everyone's got a sight line they can see. You know, when we were sold out of Wetlands, 30% of the people could not see the show because it had that unique kind of weird layout because it was built as more of a hang than a concert venue. And so what's interesting is that's why I meet people all the time who are like, I met my wife at Wetlands or I met my husband at Wetlands. That's because when it was sold out, you could not see the show. So you went to the back of the room, you went to the bar, you could hear it. You went to the basement, if you recall, and, and hung out. You could still hear it. And you met people. You know, and Wetlands was also big on two sets shows. Larry Block really wanted people to interact, to hang. And when you go to a show where it's just 100 minutes, one set, bam. And by the way, God bless Bowery Ballroom or Irving. Everyone can just see the show. They just stand there watching the show. So you don't meet your wife. You don't meet your husband at the Bowery Ballroom. But but you do a wetlands and and we tried to take some of that energy we we we've tried to do is bring it to Brooklyn Bowl and mix the two where Brooklyn Bowl is an amazing live music venue but we still try to treat people like we did at wetlands you know we still the back of our security jackets say welcome that's uh, totally the vibe i agree and yeah you have to do that well, let's talk about um, Brooklyn Bowl, because unlike Wetlands and The Cap, you started Brooklyn Bowl, you and your team started Brooklyn Bowl from scratch. And I'm sure you must have learned some lessons from Wetlands, but um, and that's real. Um, that's, a, that's a tall order to break ground, to take a property and, and start fresh and build a bowling alley adjacent to a performance stage. Again, um, bring in the magic. Um, you know, Pete, what were you thinking? Well, like we talked about Urban Plaza and Bowery Ballroom, and those are perfect venues. And they're in New York City, so they didn't need another venue like that. We didn't here in New York. So we really thought, you know, how do you do a venue 
differently. I didn't think I could do another wetlands. Um, that had been done. I just, you know, it was so much about that space. Didn't want to try to do wetlands 2.0. You know, didn't want to do a Bowery Irving. That Those venues were already doing great. New York City didn't need another. So I had spent time in New Orleans, younger, you know, during college, Jazz Fest, and went to Mid-City Bowl, Rock and Bowl. And it wasn't quite the layout of Brooklyn Bowl, but it kind of melded bowling and fun and late night jazz fest. I saw George Porter from the meters there. And so I, I want to be up front. Like the, the, the rock and bowl helped inspire what Brooklyn Bowl is. We did it a little differently. We, you know, put the lanes right next to the stage. We found this amazing 140-year-old warehouse, an old ironworks foundry in Williamsburg. And the other thing Wetlands didn't have was food, air conditioning. <laughs> you know, we, we had a great sound. We, we kind of, you know, Brooklyn Bowl is definitely a venue created by someone who owned a beat up traditional rock club who wanted to improve upon that experience while maintaining that special vibe that Wetlands had. That was really the goal. And how do we make it different? We we made the out of the bowling. It was really meant to feel like New Orleans in New York. And I feel good about that. We today, you know, we're almost 14 years later since we opened in uh, summer of 09. And when the New Orleans bands come through, they're playing uh, a lot Brooklyn ball. And, and, and it, you know, there's no windows. You're in an old warehouse. You know, but yeah, that blue ribbon food. And we were right. We we thought we cannot do solo acoustic music there. We can't do a comedy show because of the bowling. But once you have a three-piece, four-piece, five-piece rock show, hip-hop, indie, jam, DJ, anything really that's multi-artist, um, you don't hear the bowling. It's just the sound overtakes it and it's just not an issue. And... And it just makes it fun, you know, being on the lane, watching a show, being with eight friends, getting to bowl, getting to have the blue ribbon. It ended up just being an experience that now we've been fortunate. You know, we're in Vegas, Nashville, Philly. We're going to do DC next. It's just a different evolution, right? Live music venues, they probably rock shows really just go back to the late 50s when rock started, early 60s. And they were always this stage facing a bar. If you look at classic thousand cap venues around America, probably the world. And we just really did a tweak on it. So Brooklyn Bowl is, you know, adding the food and the bowl. I'm also a film guy. That's where you and I met. And those, the, the layout of the lanes is essential in enabling a visual experience where your eyes are like 140 feet from the screens and the screens are 100 feet wide at the end of the lanes. And you've been there like that. We run the live show on the I'm on those screens, the live IMAG of the show, or do psychedelic visuals. And that's a big part of the specialness is the visual. And that's my background. I love visual presentation combined with music. And Brooklyn Bowl is a great canvas for that because that layout because the lanes enable that visual experience what was your spark and inspiration for the capitol theater another very ambitious project yeah i got a call and she said hey 
I think there's an opportunity. The owner, Marvin Ravikoff at the Capitol, I think is looking to pass it on. He had taken it over in 1984 and there was like a hole in the roof and birds in the living in the Capitol. This was the theater that in 70, 71 had Pink Floyd, Janis Joplin, uh, the dead played there 18 times, 11 months, then the Stones, Bowie, uh, early Sabbath, uh, Derek and the Dominos, but it had gone away largely. And um, I walked in it. You know, it's funny. I saw the visual opportunity, you know, back to the, my film background and doing IMAX and all that. When I walked into the Capitol, I could see the imagery on the walls, you know, the opportunity to create a planetarium type effect, you know, with visuals and we did projection mapping and, and we did that. So when we do these shows, the capacity is 2000. When we're doing, we just did nine nights of Phil Lesh, uh, the legendary bass player from the Grateful Dead. And we put these visuals on the walls from projection mapping and you combine the music with that visual and we do that at the ball with the screens at the end of the lanes. It's really what I look to do, which is combine audio and visual to kind of lift the audience experience. So I saw that from day one at the Capitol and I pushed hard to make it happen. And I got it. And we've done a thousand shows there now in the last 10 years. Wow. Ah, it's a beautiful theater. I love going there. I love actually all your venues. love the Brooklyn Bowl as well. Um, so let's continue with the theme of magic because you you say that you're in the pursuit of magic and my contention is that you bring the magic. And and I think the best example of that might be Fare Thee Well, the, the 50th anniversary shows for The Grateful Dead, which also happened to be the 20th anniversary of, of Jerry Garcia's passing. And those were um, shows over a long weekend in at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, and then Soldier Field, Chicago. What was the, um, what's the genesis of that Grateful Dead reunion? How did you get the Grateful Dead, the living members, surviving members of the Grateful Dead, back together when nobody could? Tell us about that. Um, well, I'm a fan, and I love uh, the Grateful Dead. That's how I really met Larry Block from Wetlands is uh, my documentary. It's called In Miles to Go. You can check it out on YouTube about the Grateful Dead. And so I was tracking and paying attention and doing shows with Weir and Mickey Hart and Kreutzmann at Wetlands. And so I actually tried to get their 40th anniversary in 2005 and get them to do a big show at the Garden. A lot of guests. And uh did not happen. <laughs> Um, but that had me prepping early to be ready for the 50th anniversary in 2015. And at that point, uh, Phil Lesh had, had begun playing a series of shows at the Capitol Theater. He's almost done 100 now in the last 10 years since I reopened it. But he loved the Capitol, and um, he was the key uh, person who, who was to get to, to convince that they should do a 50th anniversary reunion show. And it helps when there's one band member that you're trying to convince if you've already booked them at your venue, you know, and they, that they have to come through and because they can't avoid you. 
you know, when you're trying to get something done and you're calling an agent, calling a manager and you can't get through, or they can't even reach their client, right? It's hard to get someone on board when the agent can't reach the client because the client's off the grid. So, but when that client is booked to play three nights at the Capitol Theater uh, previously and shows up, you know, you pick your right moment and you go corner them. <laughs> so really, that's what happened. And uh, fortunately, I, you know, he loved the cap, Phil and his wife, Jill. And I was able to talk to them, you know, as a fan and as someone who'd done a lot of shows with them and explain why I thought doing celebrating the 50th anniversary was such an important thing for the everything around the Grateful Dead, the fans, the history, and really also Phil, and because and, he loves the music. And, and so he agreed, we did it. And when you're doing something that big, back to the details and all the swirling things and reacting to things going wrong and got to go meet the city of Chicago and Homeland Security and every police, fire, you know, health um, department you can think of. And then you go on sale and you blow out tickets in two minutes. Which it's, it's not always good to sell out too fast because then you have so much additional demand. Then you have to deal with all Hazari of the secondary markets and people, but we added a couple more shows in California. And by the way, we did those stadium shows 360 and anyone listening, you can kind of Google fairly well Soldier Field. And that makes a big difference. We were doing like 77,000 people because the entire area behind the stage was all full. Most, you know, stadium gigs are like 55,000, still big, 53, but they don't go right all the way behind the stage. And so the energy in that stadium, it's a notch higher. It's a level higher. You know, when you do the 360, it's an unbelievable feeling. And um, I wish there were more shows you could do that with because it's just, it was an awesome feeling, you know. Same with like streaming, like, we were able to beam the Dead 50 shows into movie theaters, into concert venues, which are even better for watching because you can drink while watching the show. And people who did that loved it. Sirius Satellite Radio, audio, video, everything you can think of in theater, in home. And it was a real happening. People had parties and would set up projectors in their backyard. And I wish there were more shows. That's why I tried to get the Led Zeppelin reunion. <laughs> But, but didn't quite, couldn't quite nail that one because I wish there were more shows that were big enough that people like wanted to have a party to watch the stream. All right, now you have to tell me the story that everyone wants to hear about, the famous rainbow story. How did you get a rainbow? How much money did you have to pay to get a rainbow as, a, um, as an honor to Jerry Garcia at the, um, at the, the show at Levi's Stadium? Tell me about that. Well, yeah, so the first night of the Dead 50 run was in Santa Clara, California. A lot of energy built up and a lot of people wondering, you know, can Trey Anastasio hold on to Jerry Garcia's belt, you know, and is he the right guy? And older deadheads were saying, nah, this is probably not the right celebration. And some people saying yes. So there was a lot up in the air. And then they're playing in the first set. And what was cool, we were in Santa Clara, California. It wasn't even raining. 
it was one of those purple skies, you know, deep red, purple sky sunsets. And there's like a little clouds in the distance. It was the end of the first set. This amazing rainbow came out. If anyone listening Googles Grateful Dead rainbow, it'll pop up. And it was such a perfect rainbow that people thought I made it. There was a friend of mine at Billboard magazine, Shirley Halpern, wrote me and she said, Shaps, how'd you make that rainbow? And I said, Shirley, you can't make a rainbow. It's real. And she said, come on. I said, Shirley, it's real. She's like, come on. And so I joked, okay, I paid 50 grand for this, you know, to this technology, you know, to make a rainbow. And in her article on Billboard that night after the first show, which was a you know stellar review, she said there's rumors that this amazing rainbow came out that Pete Shapiro made it for 50 grand. And she was, you know, I was like, Jesus. And we woke up uh, and Billboard's article had been picked up all around the world. We woke up the next morning and in London, there was headlines in like Daily Mail saying, Grateful Dead make rainbow. And, uh, but, but the reality is, um, it was a natural thing. It's pretty cool. And that, I don't know if you're, you know, it was such a perfect thing that sometimes it makes you wonder, is magic real? You know, so I'll never, you know, I, I just know I feel very lucky that from that moment on, everything broke right. The weather, by the way, when you're doing outdoor shows, weather sounds obvious, but when it's perfect weather, 77 degrees, not humid, 76, everything goes easier. The load in the night before that morning, the equipment, it shows up on time. When it rains and there's bad weather, it gets delayed often. Things take longer when the weather's rough. People are smiling when the weather's good, the, 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 the crew. Then the fans show up. And if the weather's just perfect, not crazy hot, humid, not raining. And, and listen, you're fine on a gray day, not raining. But when you have magic weather, perfect weather, you, you'll notice this next time out. Everyone's smiles are big. Shiny, happy people. Yeah. So we got that at Fairly Well all five nights. And like that changed my life. The last July 5th, 2015 was the final show. The next day on the Monday, poured rain and lightning. Wow. Mountain Girl, who was Jerry Garcia's uh, former wife, said that was Jerry crying tears of joy. Uh, it's beautiful. Is that cool? That rain had come the night before and there was lightning. When you have lightning and you have to like ev evacuate a crowd, bring them out, bring them in, even if you're going to bring them back in, you know, the whole experience is just not the same when you have to do an evacuation. And we just missed that by a day. And so my life would be different. Fair thee Wells reputation. It's this amazing weekend. It's just different when you lose a day from weather. And um, the other smart thing we did was like, we're not, we, we couldn't control the weather. Another thing that worked out was just, uh, how do you deal with security on an issue like 75,000 deadheads? And so we got all the security teams, uh, the security personnel to wear tie-dyed shirts. They still had their number. They were still official shirts, security, but they were all tie-dyed versus like the black security company shirt. That little touch, that made a big difference because people, when, when you see a stadium full of security in tie-dyed shirts... That sets a that sets a tone. Yeah, you're you're telling the crowd that security is aligned with the audience, that we're all there for a purpose and together. 
Pete, you've promoted over 10,000 shows um, in your business, in your, um, in your career. And of course, 10,000 corresponds with 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell, and, and you reference in your book. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in your 10,000 shows and now well over 10,000 hours? Talk about relationships. What have you learned about that? Yeah, um, it gets a little easier as you do more shows because you have learned how to deal with all these problems <laughs> and you know everyone. You know, you know a lot of the bands, not everyone, but for me, I've grown up and I do shows with people that I'm friends with, that I've done shows before with. And it makes it a little easier to go through some of the challenges. And we've been through a lot of challenges with COVID and other things when you're making adjustments on postponing a show and rebate tickets or policies related to COVID and vaccine tests or not and checks. And so when you know the manager, you know the agent, especially you know the artist, it's like anything in life, you know, when you have that relationship. And, and I think the artists, you know, want to be doing shows with people that they feel comfortable with. And so learning how to hang, you know, that that's something I got early at Wetlands, being there late at night. I didn't have a family in the 90s. So I was able to, you know, we went late till two in the morning. And when the show was over, I was there, you know, hanging out, you know, bringing tequila shots into the band room. Those bands that I was with at two, three, four in the morning at Wetlands 25 years ago, these are bands I'm still doing the shows with now. And um, we just had a show this weekend on Saturday with the Revivalists at the Capitol. And that's a band that started at Brooklyn Bowl, did a ton of shows there, probably started doing 100 people. And we just sold out 2,000 immediately. So, and when you see those guys backstage and I'm greeting them, it makes a difference that they remember we did shows together since there were 100 people. And so Cream Rises, you know, in live music world, just like every other, a lot of other places. And um, I mean, I'm a little tired. You can hear I got 10,000 shows. You can hear it in my voice a little bit. But, and I've been doing it every night since 1996. And I haven't been to all 10,000 of those shows, but we counted shows where if something went wrong at four in the morning, I'd get the phone, the ultimate phone call, like how to fix it or how to deal or, so that takes a lot of endurance, right? You stress, even when you're not there, I'm checking in, making sure the band's happy, making sure it goes well for the fans. I actually have certain moves I can make remotely to help make sure your show's going right, check in with a manager, remind them X, Y, Z. And I can sometimes do that from far away, ask what's if this is happening, let's do that. And uh, the other thing I've learned, like, I can never fully put the phone away on a Saturday night, you know, because the shows. But I can put it away for a bit, but I know when it rings and it's the venue calling, it's usually not good. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't just fully sign off. That's why I'm probably pretty good at what I do. I've learned, like, things can pop up and it's better when they can reach you. And luckily we got these phones. I mean, they're good and bad, you know, because they're always with you. 
but I don't have to be at the show all every night to help make an important decision if there is one that needs to be made, you know, s- spontaneously. They can get to me. And that stuff matters. Yeah. No, you started with, uh, in terms of lessons, you started with a fairly small venue. Wetlands was, what, uh, 200? Oh, no. No, more. More, six, seven. Okay, so Wetlands was six, seven. Then Cap is, what, 2,000? Yeah. Bowery Bowl. The Bowl is about 1,900 or 1,000. The Vegas Brooklyn Bowl is 2,500. The Nashville Brooklyn Bowl is 1,200. The Brooklyn Bowl in Philly is 900. Right. But, you know, I did the fairly well with 78,000, but the venues so are how more. So how do you yeah. scale up from from those modestly sized venues to arenas and to stadiums? Well, I, I'm not a big arena stadium guy because Live Nation, the business is pretty dominated, as you know, by Live Nation and AEG and that level who can take the risk and they have relationships across the country and world so they can go to a big act and offer them 40-day tour with a big advance. It's just not quite what I do. I'm doing these venues. And actually, recently, I've been exploring doing more, um, like what you're talking about, in bigger venues. Um, and it's hard when it's not yours, when, when it's you don't own the venue. One thing I'm able to do, you know, I call it benevolent dictatorship, which is a good way to work, I think, because then it's very clear decision-making. It's quick decision-making, but if they're benevolent, hopefully they're getting guidance, they're listening to advice, and they're making a smart, quick decision versus decision by committee or group takes longer, you know? So with me making those calls and having a, a venue with clear walls and a space, you know, a lot of these arena stadium shows, the promoter, Live Nation, doesn't own the building. It's a civic auditorium owned by a municipality or here in New York, it's owned by Madison Square Garden, but Live Nation is the promoter. So there's a little bit of a church and state thing going on, you know, where in my venues, there is no separation. It's one thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> and um, for me, it's, it's, it's a better way to run a venue, obviously, you know, to have that absolute control. Um turn this light up, do adjust that, you know, bring this staffer in. That's, that's an important part of what I do is that I have the control in a way, almost like an artist, you know, it's just running a show, running a venue and how best to do it. There's a craft in that as well. <laughs> you know, especially the lights. Yeah. These venues, it's like a great restaurant, you know, it goes beyond the foods, obviously driving it. And for us, the music is the equivalent. Although we have that element of food, you know, we, the bowling is, 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 is a whole nother thing. The music, it's really an amalgamation or like a multi-sensory thing is what we tried a little bit. And again, those screens that we talked about are really important and just visual stimuli. And I think right now, given the crazy world we live in and the stressful time, this stuff is important, I mean, more important than ever and, and having visual candy and getting to escape you know, the craziness of the world. Um, and that's also where I learned about activism. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you, speaking of the crazy world, we spent two years with COVID and um, we're still dealing with it. Uh, the pandemic decimated the live entertainment business. You've had two significant world events 
that absolutely impacted your venues. 9-11 down at Wetlands, and we can talk about that, but I also want to talk about the pandemic and how that decimated the live music business recently. Why don't you start with uh, 9-11 and Wetlands? No, they both were like, it's back to how we started. Like, we're talking about having to respond to everything. And you just don't know what's coming. I've just really learned to like, when I wake up in the morning, check the phone, hold my breath. (laughs) Because you never know what can happen. And um, the pandemic, I mean, both of those experiences, 9-11 and the pandemic, were completely unexpected. Completely out of left field. Remember how we all felt on 9-11? No one was expecting that. And we were located down near the Trade Center. And the pandemic, if I had said, hey, by the way, we're going to lose shows for a year and a half, you'd be, we, no one would have believed that either. So um, we try and uh, you just adjust to the reality on the ground. And thank God for the government, which helped us and helped everyone in live music, the independent venues. And you just kept a job. You want to stay, you want to be aggressive and protect jobs and protect the bands. And then you also have to be smart, protect the fans and be health conscious. And it's just weighing all these things and money and paying bills and the ability to sell a ticket or not sell a ticket. You know, you don't want to start doing shows and they can't work and um, making informed decisions with your team and having messaging being clear. You know, that's one thing doing the Fairly Well Dead 50 shows. Like everything we said would be like, watch so closely. So I've learned how to, you know, be smart about how we message, you know, and always, and especially in social media age now, we're in 2022, you see what's flying around. You got to always make sure you say the right thing. I'm personally not on my own socials. The venues are all on them, but I'm not. I, I can barely handle my life as is. So, uh, I don't know how people do it with all the socials, but our venues all have big acts. And you know what's really important? Email. Opt-in email list is the most powerful thing, more than the social. And so we try to really push our venues to get their email list over 100,000, a new one as quick as possible. Now in New York, and I just heard in Vegas, and the Capitol Theater, each of those venues, the Brooklyn Bowl, New York, and Vegas, and Cap, those email lists are each like 175,000 plus. So when you press send, a lot of people hear about the shows. That the, What's hard is when you open and it's 12,000, 8,000 person email list and you press send and you don't sell a lot of tickets because <laughs> people don't know. You know, here's one more interesting one. Remember the Village Voice would come out on Tuesday nights, Wednesday mornings back in the 80s and 90s. And like you'd get open the voice, you'd go to two thirds of the way to the back. They'd have like 15 music pages with all the shows, who was playing the garden, Roseland, Jones Beach, um, Tramp, CBGBs, Wetlands too. You you could go through those ads, those pages, and at the end, after 15, 20 minutes, you'd have a pretty good feel for what shows were coming to New York, tri-state area, at all the venues. Now, most people like subscribe to the Brooklyn Bowl email list or Brooklyn Steel email list, but you you don't get as much of a feel for what was coming throughout across the whole city as you did in 1997. Isn't that funny? Like we're we're much more further technology. And there's oh my rockness. There's some email lists, but I swear holding that newspaper and scanning the pages with the big ads, the colorful ads, that was a very analog way 
that led to you knowing better than you do now of what music shows were coming to New York City. It's a pretty big thing, I swear. The voice, and the voice is gone. And anything like that. But um, listen, email lists are still great. And, and when we press send, but you don't really have as good of a feel like tonight. Yeah, it's, I, I don't really know what's going on at Irving, you know, or Gramercy Theater or the others. We're back in a day, I would. But um, it's, yeah, so it's all about email and, and, uh, and, and when you press send, it, it's so much easier once you're up and running for a few years back to the 10,000 anything, you know, and, and opening these new venues for anyone out. But, and I tell people, young kids who work for me, one thing you can do is just putting on a show for 50 people at a local Irish pub is not that different than doing a show for 50,000 people. You got to book the show, the venue and the band. You got to announce the show. You got to sell the tickets. Then on day of, you got to prep, you got to advance the sound check, getting the people into the show, even if it's 50 people. And you got to make sure the sound is good, the lights, you know, then the show's done. Then you got to settle the show, pay the band. And a lot of that has similarities between 50 people, 500, 5,000, and 50,000. I mean, obviously 50,000, it gets a lot bigger, the entry point and the marketing. and But you still got it no matter what. And every, so, I, so I tell young people, go back to your college, go to your home. My first show was the Hamlin Street Block Party in Evanston, Illinois, 1994, that I put on. So... You can you can start doing your Malcolm Gladwell first shows at the local, you know, oh Henry's. <laughs> I believe that. You can just go put on a show. Go find your brother's, you know, cover band for 30 people or whatever and put it on. You started out with activism as one of the key elements of Wetlands Preserved, but you're still involved in in uh, progressive movements. So it's still relevant to you, especially during this uh, this time. What do you tell us about some of the things that you're doing in terms of a uh, vote and participation? Well, now I'm chairman of Headcount, um, which is the largest voter registration organization re- related to music now at live shows. So when like Billie Eilish and Ariana Grande and Lizzo, they're touring, we did stuff with Harry Styles, and obviously they're dead. That's the world we'd come out of. You'll see tables, sometimes head count. We really try to get young people. We registered a half million in 2020. We just did 200,000 in 2022. And I'm feeling good. You know, young people turned out last week in the election. And I learned out of wetlands. Wetlands used to have a lot of information it was pre-internet. It would host meetings before the shows. There was no meetup.org. You met at the rock club. Groups like Amnesty International, Marine Forest Action Network. And then they put information out up on the main floor in the show. Pa- old-fashioned paper. You know, to give people information on how they could get involved. So for me, it started at Wetlands, that activism. And then I started Headcount um, and I've been chairman. It's almost 20 years that, that Headcount's going. And we're nonpartisan, but we, we are partisan to say go vote. You register to vote. And so we, we, we at the big festivals, Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, we try to have a presence and then have a presence, particularly where young people are going to show. So you do, the real idea is you can have fun and do something positive at the same time. 
All right, here comes the Periscope question. You've been a big advocate of streaming. How do you see streaming as a as a venue tool, as a promotion tool, as an artist marketing tool and communication tool in the future? You know, it's an important part of it because people get to be at home. I, I like, we were doing some Twitch streams during the day. We just did Sam Bush, Robin Hitchcock last couple of weeks, 2 p.m. out of the old jazz standard space. And it's cool to see them interfacing with the people at home in chat rooms, live, talking to the chat rooms. But listen, it's down, it grew exponentially during COVID. It's settled back down now because people are out and about doing their things. But it, it'll never replace the live experience, a live stream, but it's better than nothing. Oh, sure. And it's great for that one-to-one experience when you want to connect with the artists. You can do that without having them come out stage and anywhere. Yeah, you can do the talking to people at home. And listen, we do a bunch of bands who do paid streams, taking it so it's additional revenue. Then there's benefits of doing free streams. So I think it's going to be part of the future. The streaming thing is here to stay. What about other trends, innovations. How do you feel about blockchain and web 3.0? Are you I'm still learning about it myself and you know that had a pop obviously during covid and I think that's it has settled down as well streaming blockchain all that stuff. You know after a while cream has to rise. People want to see you know I can't speak gimmicks. Gimmicks can work for a little while, but then reality catches on. So listen where e- blockchain can make like who owns this ticket? It's authentic. Or this poster is an actual limited edition that, you know, where it can help ensure accuracy on issues like the ticket, you know, is, is real. That's a big positive. Where it's used as a gimmick for like just art and let's make money and do this or, or, or pseudo art, but it's really about the money. I don't, I'm not as, you know, I think that'll get spotted more and more now. People are a little skeptical of it. So it has to really be good. One of our heroes is is Phil Lesh. You get to work with him. We get to listen to him. Just a brilliant artist, uh, bass player, and collaborator. He said, and I love this quote in your book, Peter thinks like a musician. He understands the spirit of the music I'm trying to make because he wants to create situations for that music that enhance the experience on many levels. What do you think about that? You know, that's why I do what I do. You know, it's hard out there. And then you hear that. That's awesome. And uh, I just did nine shows with Phil. (laughs) And I try. We mix up the lineups each time. I try to, I'm still, like I said, because I, to me, all this stuff matters a lot. I'm a fan, the details. So that just means when I finish this thing with you, I'll have a backup of emails and texts that I need to respond to. Because if I don't, I might lose a little bit of that special things for Phil. These are like, it's work and it's hard, but you are trying to create an environment for a show that then Phil Lash, who's 82 years old and seen everything, says something like, you just quoted, you know, you're an art, you know, I, I have to do my version of his art. Well, his is playing the bass. Sometimes it's like, damn, that might be a little easier than putting on a show. Mm-hmm. But he's got his bass bombs. He's still dropping them. Oh, yeah. And I'm responsible for the other part. Make sure his bombs fall and bombs of love and not bombs of uh, feedback or problems. Now, last week, I went back to my alma mater, um, 
I know you're a wildcat from Northwestern. I went to Wash U and I spoke to the undergraduate entertainment business program and they had some great questions and spent uh, just some time chopping it up. What advice do you have for kids like yourself back in the 90s? They're looking to a future in music and in touring and performance and doing the things in, in the business that you did. What advice do you have for them? Back to that idea of like doing a show at O'Henry's for 50 people with your brother's cover band. It's like, and, and I did all the internships and, st- and mo- I personally moved home after college so I could keep doing internships. Some people might be like, no, I got to be on my own. Well, then they got to make more money faster. The other thing I would tell someone young, if you're, if you have a job and you get a, and you're in a band or you're, want to write the great American novel, keep the job. If your band gets a tour, don't quit the job to just do the tour or, or tell your boss that you want to go on tour. You love the gig. You might want to come back because once tour ends, you're going back, you're going to go look for that job. We've had two kids at Brooklyn Bowl, both in a band. One walks up to the HR person and says that my band got a tour. I quit. The other one says, my band got a tour. I'm going on tour for six weeks, but I'd love to come back. They both come back for the job after tour. But one asked really nicely, hey, can I come back? And the other was kind of just like, I quit. The only difference between those two people, they went up into the room. They had the same three-minute conversation. No difference in time. The only difference is how they said it. And one got advice from a parent or someone to say, hey, you should, you might want to come back. You should. And one didn't get any advice, just went and did it. Um, There you go. And that happened and they both came back. And there's no difference in anything other than just how they said their three-minute meeting. And so if anyone's listening and young, I just keep that story in your back pocket. Well, those who are listening and young need to see Wetlands Preserved, your documentary that you produced back in the the late 90s. And... um, and appeared at South by Southwest and screened at other festivals and then landed a deal at Showtime. Yeah, that was awesome. That's how we met. Thank you, brother. Always appreciative for that. Well, where can people see that amazing film now? It's called Wetlands Preserved, a story of an activist rock club. Great documentary. Yeah, you can see it on YouTube. We have that on YouTube, on the Relics channel on YouTube, Wetlands Preserved. You can check out a Miles to Go, my college film on YouTube. The Music Never Stops book. And uh, Stephen, I'm always appreciative for what we did together in that Wetlands movie. And uh, thanks for having me do this. Hey, congratulations, Pete, on the book, The Music Never Stops. What putting on 10,000 shows has taught me about life, liberty, and the pursuit of magic. It's a, it is a great read, and um, I commend it to any person that's interested in the biz. It's got a lot of real uh, human stories and uh, there's magic sprinkled with your pixie dust throughout it. And we we learn just as you learn from your mistakes. And we appreciate the fact that you were not so full of yourself. You were able to share some of those those foibles with us. So we were able to uh, to go for the ride. We were on that journey with you and it, it's exciting. Here's my Here's my last question, Pete. Uh, this book deserves a soundtrack. Give me some songs that you think belong on that soundtrack. 
I love this song. You know what? Um, well, my film American Road, I made a film. I went to every state in America in seven minutes. I love this. It's an instrumental song the band Fish did from 1995, Madison Square Garden. So I'm going to go with You Enjoy Myself. Uh, I love Sugar Magnolias by The Grateful Dead. Um, Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London. I just heard the other night on Halloween, and I was like, damn, that's a great song. Um, you know, it's fun. I've done so many shows with a lot of these um, bands. They grew up at Wetlands, you know, and uh, Brooklyn Bowl. I just... Um, had the band The Revivalists and they just played the cap last weekend Wish I Knew was a song by The Revivalists that I'm a big fan of I love Tedeschi Trucks um, Midnight in Harlem is um, a great song there, there's a few and I just Midnight in Harlem if anyone's listening Susan Tedeschi's voice is that'll, that's another one that if you're like feeling tired feeling down you listen to that and you're like let's go take over the world Let's go do this. And uh, I might go listen to some right now, brother. Well, well, when I finished your book, I got up and I, I started to clap. I stood up. I started to clap. And then I got a lighter. And then I, oh, I lit oh, it in the room. Beer. Woo! There you go. Thank you, brother. It's the truth. So I, I'm asking you, as, as we sign off, I, I'm, I want to encourage you to put a playlist together because I want to get in your head of all the different... Oh, I have one. I, I don't know. I've done them before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a good idea. Well, the, the book's 50 chapters, 50 shows. So we would just do it off the 50 shows. But um, actually, I did a thing with David Frick, who's the man, and he did a playlist. He put one together. And I think actually there were some Tedeschi trucks on it. We'll do some fish, some roots. Oh, Rock Me Baby. I did one some. The Roots with B.B. King and Trey Anastasio in an IMAX film I made a long time ago, Rock Me Baby, which was amazing, great. Uh, I got very lucky to work with uh, B.B. That was the, that was the all-access film? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And uh, Rock Me Baby, I love that. Take Me to the River, I did with Al Green and Dave Matthews, it was great. But uh, I could go on and on, but uh, life calls. That's no, great. Well, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for joining us in the Periscope. But Louis Brisboy welcomes our friend Pete Shapiro. We, we urge you to read The Music Never Stops. Pete Shapiro, thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Peace. Today's podcast is presented by Louis Brisboy, a nationally recognized, multifaceted, full-service law firm focused on today's challenges and tomorrow's opportunities. Our technical producer is Noah Vanderwerf. Our research associate is Christina Stiliana. Our coordinating producer, Robert Maslanka. Marketing coordinator, Ayush Kumar. Our project consultant, Jonathan Pink. And a very special thanks to Michael Wenso, composer of our theme music. No one as special. Oh,